Hello, it's Tuesday, January the 18th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. We're talking money. Debts are beginning to roll in after Christmas spending. More and more shoppers are using buy now, pay later schemes. We'll give you the latest on that. I'm talking to the celebrity chef, Jean-Christophe Novelli, about tension in the kitchen. Partygate, Dominic Cummings is back making even more allegations. But should we believe a word of what he says? But first, the Ukraine. Britain has sent military equipment and trainers to the Ukraine to bolster the, the country against the possibility of a Russian invasion. Britain has sent high-tech weaponry to the Ukraine in an attempt to thwart any Russian invasion. There's been a huge build-up of Russian troops on the border, some talk of 100,000 troops. Two Royal Air Force transporters flew to Kiev to deliver missile systems, and we think some trainers have joined them too. They'll be in Ukraine to teach their counterparts how to combat Russian tanks. The Kremlin, of course, insists it's got no plans to attack and is accusing the West of aggression. Joining me now is Sir Tony Brenton, who's the former British ambassador to Russia. Sir Tony, um, it's getting very worrying over there. What is what is Putin up to? Yes, it is very worrying, um, and uh, we're probably as close to a major war in the middle of Europe as we have been for a long time. Contrary to what a lot of people are saying, I don't think Putin wants war. He's got security concerns about, in particular, about Ukraine joining NATO, and he wants assurances that that's not going to happen. And he's sort of putting on a loud and annoying demonstration of Russian power and the Russian threat to Ukraine in the hope that the West will listen to all the noise and will then work towards a compromise. And actually, there's a compromise available there if we can find a way to it, um, because although the West will never agree to excluding Ukraine from NATO forever, Ukraine, in any case, is not going to join NATO for a long, long time, given the unresolved conflicts there are all around it. So we could certainly, I would say, agree to a moratorium on uh, Ukraine joining, a moratorium on supplying military equipment to Ukraine. And I suspect that that would give enough to Putin for him to be able to go home and say he succeeded in what he was, in what he was out to get. Does Putin have to worry about public opinion at home in the way other leaders do, Satoni? He's virtually a dictator, we know that, but um, uh, public opinion will be on his side the more bellicose he sounds about Russia, about well, the I, Ukraine. I, I, you're right, of course. He doesn't have to worry about the public opinion in the way that a democratically elected leader does. Um, if things go very badly wrong uh, in a war, for example, then that will obviously affect his standing and quite conceivably his regime. Uh, but there's a, a, an alternative danger, which is that if he comes away from this with nothing, he will be humiliated, both internationally and domestically. And there are forces within the Kremlin who at that point will be, will, will be likely to say, you know, he's, he's not a strong enough president for us and we need someone even tougher. Oh, dear. Yeah, that's worrying. Yes, well, indeed. Oh, dear. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what, what of the United States in all of this? Joe Biden, the new, well, he's not a new president now, but he's talked tough. We know he's had talks with uh, Putin. They don't get on. We know that. Um, how important is the role of the United States in all of this? Oh, it's central. And I think Joe Biden's actually done a rather good job. He's reacted to the, the threat that Russia is making to Ukraine by saying, you can't blackmail us. Um, we're going to talk to you, but we're going to talk to you in the company of our European and other partners. Those talks have now started. We've had a rather bad week of talks where each side has restated its initial position uh, and there's been no convergence between them. But 
I'm, I'm rather hoping that quietly in the shadows, and this is going to be down to the United States, someone is looking for a way of getting to the sort of compromise that I've described. And if they can do that, and, and Biden has some very good people around him, then over time we will see a de-escalation. There's no guarantee at all that that will happen. At the moment, things are tense. Uh, it is conceivable, I don't think it's likely, but it is conceivable that Putin is genuinely so angry with Ukraine that he's going to invade come what may. But there is a, a sliver of hope still that if the United States and Russia can find a quiet way to go off into a corner and, and, and work out a compromise, that we will all then get back to a more rational type of politics. And the trigger for this war of words or um, uh, whatever you want to call what the Kremlin's up to, building up all those troop numbers on the border, is it just because uh, that the Ukraine has indicated it, will, it wants to join NATO and that NATO wants it to join? Well, no, that's not the only thing that the Russians are worried about. They're worried about the expansion of NATO in general. Right. The fact is that since the collapse of the Soviet Union, NATO has acquired 14 new member states. It's now got close to a, a population base of close to a billion people. It spends 10 times as much as Russia on its military. So it's unsurprising, really, that the Russians are, are pretty scared and pretty nervous. Putin has expressed his unhappiness with all of this regularly over the years. He's now decided, and I think it was with the arrival of the Biden administration that prompted, to some extent, this decision, that it can't go any further. Hence, the, uh, he, he, he's already mobilized his troops once at the beginning of last year. He, he then stood them down. He's now mobilized them again. He's made demands. And hopefully, he's hoping that somehow the West will find a way of responding to his demands. I don't believe for one moment he thinks he's going to get everything. But as I say, he needs to get enough to be able to go back to his people and to his people in the Kremlin and say, look, we've got some reassurances on our security concerns. And just finally, Sir Tony, Britain sent um, high-tech weaponry. We've sent trainers to show the Ukrainians how to use the weaponry. Are we a bit player in all of this? I know we're a, a big player in NATO, but are we a bit player in this uh, diplomatic uh, standoff? No, I don't think we are. I mean, we're not obviously not as central as the United States. But the very firm line that we are taking... It will encourage others to be firm, will encourage the Ukrainians to stand fast and may make the, the, the United States a bit less ready to compromise. I'm, I'm slightly unhappy as to where we are because we're not going to make a central difference if it comes to military action. Mm. And I very much hope that we don't watch our trainers having to be precipitately withdrawn from Ukraine as we had to watch our troops precipitately withdrawn from Afghanistan a couple yeah. of months ago. Um, but no, we're, 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 people take us seriously. And the very firm support that we're offering to Ukraine um, will, will be a, a measure that by which other people will, will the measure themselves. Very interesting. That's the Tony Brenton, the former British ambassador to Russia. Thanks so much for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and our video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So Dominic Cummings has returned to the scene. He's now said he would swear on oath that the Prime Minister lied or misled the Commons last week when he said the gathering in Number 10, which he attended, that he thought was a work event. Cummings says the Prime Minister waved aside concerns about the gathering. A new opinion poll out today has given the Labour Party an even bigger lead, 13 points. Joining me now is the Daily Mail's Deputy Political Editor, John Stevens. John, I'm tempted to say, who cares what Dominic Cummings says? We know he's a liar because he lied in the Rose Garden about what was going on in Barnard Castle uh, and admitted as much some time later. Yeah, I think the key thing here on whether this becomes serious and potentially fatal problem for the Prime Minister 
is whether there's actually any proof for the things that Dominic Cummings is saying. Yeah. I mean, on his blog yesterday, he said that he had warned the Prime Minister verbally. Yeah. Obviously, there's no evidence for that. That's the he said, she said. Sure. I think if you do see the emergence of WhatsApp messages or emails from someone warning the Prime Minister that this was a party and it was a bad idea, I think that's when it potentially becomes very, very difficult for the Prime Minister to survive. So far, though, no sign of that. No, no, not at the moment at all. And we know Sue Gray is doing this report, uh, so much being expected of her in this report. John, do we know whether Dominic Cummings, um, I guess she won't talk to Dominic Cummings because he wasn't around during the parties. He left number 10, what, 14, 15 months ago? Yeah, although I think it is potential that she does ask to speak to him. He obviously has had a lot to say about what's been going on on his blog. And I think it would be a reasonable line of inquiry for her to interview him about what he's claiming. Okay, Uh, And do you sense Downing Street are very nervous about what Cummings has said, John? I think one of the things they will be concerned about is the last two lines of his blog post yesterday when he said there are many more pictures of parties that haven't been reported in public yet to come out. And he said you'll hear more from me after the Sue Gray report. I think Downing Street was hoping that this report would get everything out there into the open that they would then be able to give a response from the Prime Minister and then move on. But I think there is a worry among Tory MPs that that could happen and then we find out another bombshell revelation and we get back to this chaos again. It would be in Downing Street's interest, therefore, to work out just how many parties there were, who held them, who was there, and get all that to Sue Gray so that Dominic Cummings can't mug the Prime Minister after the report comes out. Yeah, we don't want any more domshells as they're being nicknamed after that report has come out in the public. Yeah. Um, and what about the timing of Sue Gray's report, John? There was some suggestion it could be the end of this week. I'm now hearing it could be moving to a perhaps early next week. Yeah, so her aim has always been to get it done by the end of this week. But as you know, there's been new allegations coming out every few days. So her job's got bigger and bigger. And people close to her, as you say, are now suggesting... They still do want to get it done by the end of this week, but it's possible it slips into the start of next week or possibly even later. And just finally, I imagine um, for number 10, they want it out as soon as possible because, as you say, they can't really move on. Nobody can move on until that report's published. Yeah, and you've seen kind of these so-called red meat announcements in the last couple of days. Kind yeah. Of kind of keep Tory MPs amused for the time being, but there's only so long you can go on for like that before the government gets completely paralysed. Indeed. That's John Stevens, who is our very fine deputy political editor here at the Daily Mail. Jean-Christophe Novelli is a multi-Michelin star-winning chef, and he's reviewed the new film Boiling Point in today's Daily Mail. Now, the film is about the stress and strains behind the scenes in a fashionable London restaurant on a single busy day just before Christmas. And for Monsieur Novelli, it brought back some fond memories from the kitchen and some not so fond, including one of being punched in the face by a customer. And he joins me now. Jean-Christophe, you clearly um, could relate entirely to what was going on in that film. One critic called it an anxiety attack on film. Your wife, Michelle, said, all too reminiscent of another day in the office. <laughs> yes, in a way. Actually, while I was busy uh, watching the this wonderful film, I've got to say, is very well done. Great actors. Um, I started having, a, I started developing an headache. Right. <laughs> I felt very nostalgic, uh, thinking back of my time in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. 
I mean, is it really? Because, I mean, it just, it was full on. It was really high pressured. Is that what it's like every day in the kitchen in a smart restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I think we expect the pressure, you know, the, the um, I mean, to expect unexpected, you know, you're dealing with different customers every day. Yeah. We don't have the script. Uh, like I said, we have a different audience 14 times a week, believe it or not. Yeah. And even so, if you are very well geared with a format, which more any chefs will have, there's always uh, an element of uh, distractions or incidents or, you know, anything can happen. And, and we, we know, and this is the, the drill, is the buzz, is the excitement. Because if you prepare, if you make for it, you should be able to absorb the problem and just move on and, and keep rolling yeah it seems great and, and look you just you t- you do tell some great stories about your time uh in the restaurant you talk about the unfortunate mix-up by one of your waiting staff which meant the phenomenally expensive bouquet of roses her fiance had planned to hand her at the end of the evening which you'd put in one of your fridges had been handed out instead one stem, stem at a time to other diners how did you get around that well, you know, you're trying to please. Uh, I mean, the, the, like I said, the doors are always open. The, this gentleman, I remember very well this situation. Um, he came early morning. I was in the kitchen. He, he, you know, he was all excited to make. Yeah. I think he was also proposing in the same time. Uh, oh, God. Oh, evening. no. And it, you can see clearly he was really, really looking forward to get a yes from this uh, girlfriend or fiance yeah. or whatever. And, um, and, you know, we're there, we please, we, we know, I mean, I know it's a mistake to always jump to different conclusions. And I did not, did not even question myself. And but the thing is, even so, that communication is extremely important. And I did say this specific bouquet of flowers, we actually put some cling film around to make sure, you know, and so on. Uh, Sadly, was given away by one of um, um, a, a new waitresses who was, you know, did what she thought she was doing the best. And, but I think it's also part of psychology. I mean, the lady who I was dealing with was, I should not say, but she was drunk. Yes, she'd been drinking your fine wine, of course. <laughs> yeah, she did. I don't know if she really acknowledged that it was a fine wine. But um, the, the, the problem is when you're dealing with um, people who, are, who turn very quickly erratic, when you're doing it, as an audience on the front of public because my restaurant is like a stage. Yeah. And, um, and I think it was like more a challenging situation was on the, you know, I mean, I did everything, everything I could, you know, try yeah. to, I mean, I did, I did everything. The only thing I did not do is take my clothes off and jump on the table. Well, I don't know why you didn't. Perhaps that might have, <laughs> mo- that might have mollified her. Well, uh, you come to the, you come to the point where, you know, whatever you do, it's not going to work. No, but exactly. Again, I, I walked this lady to the taxi. The, the husband was, he turned to be okay on the end. I think he got the message that, you know, I mean, people are intelligent enough to see the line. And I don't know, for some reason, I think she, she got the pleasure to, to, yeah. In fact, it was not a smack. It was a punch in the face. <laughs> so that and was he came out, she, shot. <laughs> she, she went in the taxi and she came out and she banged me in a, 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 at the door. But, you know, I mean... All in a day's, a all in a day's work. That was during the service for night time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
I love this story as well. So your efforts to provide a personal service can backfire. On another Valentine's Day evening, you hosted a man. This, your system flagged up as a regular lunch guest. He arrived with his wife, who you believe was a lover of a particular brand of gin. The, the head waiter offered a mixture in G&T. Alas, it was the preferred tipple of his mistress. His wife realised and a massive yeah, scene ensued. <laughs> How terrible. I've got to say, we've got, we, we, I mean, the job we do is the best job on the planet, but also we had some good luck. Yes, he was a regular. I remember exactly what that chap was. And he actually came for lunch on that day. Ah. I mean, he used to come often, but he came on that lunch. And I think what happened is I had a different set of staff coming for the evening compared right. to the lunch. Therefore, obviously, mm. and what we tend to do is to try to define every single client, what they like, what they dislike, and so on, to make sure we give the, the best of our, uh, of our service. And obviously, systematically, one of the waiters uh, follow up the name, the drinking things, and we assume, obviously, when he was coming for lunch, he was coming with his wife, because obviously, they were doing things that were like looking like they were a partnership. Ah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't forget, things go quick. I mean, there's millions of things to do. Of and course. this is a detail which has explosed to a scenario which was, I mean, she left. She left the, 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 the table screaming. <laughs> he looked at me like I was an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I so and funny. again, it's nothing you can do. I mean, no. you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Your wife's your wife jokes that you'll draw your last breath in a restaurant kitchen because I mean you've got a very successful cookery school. You've had seven restaurants. You've had staffs of hundreds of people, and you've got a partnership at uh, in Novelia in Belfast, I think, in City Keys. That's right. Yeah, a wonderful establishment. Very exciting, growing fast, um, amazing producer there. And obviously, we don't have the drama that I used to have back no. in the eighties and the nineties. Now. Things are far more, you know, systematical, you know. Um, communication is extremely, training communication is extremely important. And also we have some uh, very lovely uh, staff members who are really willing to, to make it and to, to grow with us. And it's, it's just, it's a different world. Andrew, honestly, it's before anybody could be anyone could jump in and open a restaurant. Now... Yeah. The restrictions are far more strict, you know, with hygiene, safeties and, yeah. and so on. Well, it sounds great. Listen, you did a terrific review of um, Boiling Point. It's a great film and it's a fantastic piece in the paper today. And um, it's a great privilege for me to talk to you. Um, that is the French celebrity chef, Jean-Christophe Novelli, who is a great star. And um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So an extra bonus today. We're going to have we've got the deputy sports editor Matt Gatwood here. He's not normally here with me on a Tuesday, but it's such a big day in the Australian Open, uh, not least because Andy Murray was playing, uh, Emma Raducanu was playing, and hurrah, Novak Djokovic wasn't playing because he's been deported. So let's talk Andy Murray first. He's uh, getting on a bit now, isn't he? And he's been fighting back against all sorts of injuries, up against a seeded player. Yes, that's right. He um, It was a, a, another typical Murray uh, performance in a Grand Slam where he never does it easily. No. Uh, so he obviously took us... To, he loves taking his fans through the ringer in every tournament he goes into. Uh, and, and you know, I guess that's, you know, one of the reasons we love him is because he mm. does make it exciting. He makes it yeah. nerve-wracking. He makes it tense. Uh, and he's doing it again. So it was just like old times. Yeah. Uh, one in five sets. Um, uh, Who did he beat? He beat 
uh, now this name is not the easiest name to say. So it's Bashless Villy. Right. Uh, yes, but he was exactly. a number 20 seed or something, yeah, wasn't yeah. he? So a decent player. You know, yeah. he beat him in Sydney actually last week right. on his way to the final of that. Okay. So he will be sick of the sight of uh, yeah. he'll be sick of the sight of Murray. Yeah. Uh, but um, he couldn't get rid of him in Sydney and he couldn't get rid of him today. He couldn't do a job on him because, of course, you know, Murray is ranked higher than him. And this sort of opponent, you know, he's ranked about 20 in the world. Yeah. So Murray in his pomp would have brushed him aside. But, yeah. of course, Murray fighting back with a metal hip is a different mm. story. Mm. And you remember that this was the, the very event three years ago where he sort of had his obedience literally read out to him almost when he uh, when he quit in tears he couldn't mm. play on he, he was defeated and, and it looked like the end of the road for him when he was in so much pain that he couldn't put his and shoes he's, on he's bionic man isn't he it's incredible to come back you know now to do you know another five setter obviously we'll have to see how he pulls up um, you know ahead of the next ahead of the second round um, but he's got an opponent in the second round who's a qualifier Taro Daniel of Japan who right. um, so who's, he might get through to the third round well he could do I mean this guy's 28 he's never the, the his opponent's never been beyond the second round of a Grand Slam. Mm. Um, he's ranked outside the top 100, so you'd expect Murray, you know, could, yeah, but as long well, as he pulls up okay. A five-set match like that might um, be pretty tiring. Yeah, but, you know, he's also a bit more battle-hardened than of late because he's right. been through the Sydney tournament, mm. got to the final. Got to the final. Um, so he may not. it may not be such a shock to his body to suddenly yep. have gone through a five-setter than it would have been kind of last he year. He must be climbing up the rankings a bit now. Yeah, I don't he, he know he's exactly. He's probably not even in the top 100 I yet. I don't he? know exactly where he is now, but... No. Um, but he, yeah, he will be climbing up them. Uh, obviously, with the Sydney uh, getting to the final of the Sydney, which yeah. was his first um, ATP Tour final for a couple of years. Um, so yeah, he'll definitely be climbing up the rankings. And obviously, you know, further he goes, the, the higher he gets. But this is—it's just great, and it was just um, really so much fun to watch yeah. him. Uh, you know, again, you know, he always does this where he, he takes it to five sets, loses in the tie break, yeah, and then gets yeah. to the final set, break up. Then, then he, you know, uh, the the is Georgian opponent got the break back I'll call him his Georgian opponent rather than trying to say his name again uh, I think his so his ranking now I mean I'm guessing Murray must be about 110 in the world right. sort of thing now Very, um, well, well this will help if he gets through um, a few more rounds yeah exactly yeah so he will he will get down there but, Very good. but uh, yeah so it was really lovely to see and Emma Raducanu, all eyes on her of course tough match against a former US Open winner yeah Sloane Stevens. right who it can be very hot and cold. Very hard to predict this one was because you just don't know what sort of uh, play you're going to get with Sloane Stevens. As you say, she won a slam, but equally she hasn't played much. Um, interestingly, got married to a Premier, an ex Premier League footballer on oh, did she? over New Year. Yeah, right. a guy called Josie Altador, an American guy. Right. But anyway, um, so she, yeah, she's she sort of blows hot and cold. But and, and even today blew hot and cold because right. in the first set, Raducanu was fantastic and Sloane Stevens six played love, poorly. Wasn't it, the first she won set. six love. Then Sloane Stevens fought back. Raducanu wobbled a little bit, and Stevens won at six two. But then Raducanu won the third set uh, convincingly, six uh, one, to great. book her passage into the next round. So uh, great for her because obviously Raducanu, after the high of yes. the, you know, very difficult to back that up. Yeah. Uh, and as I said the other day, no one expects her to go and win this tournament. No. But it would be ni- nice if she can, you know, make get it into the second exactly, week. Exactly, make yeah. a dent on it. What is she, she'll be seeded, will she, Raducanu? She is she seeded for this? So I don't think she's seeded, no, right. because she uh, Stevens would have been seeded, but right. not her because okay. of the because yeah. of the way the system works. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, it's great start because it would have been a disaster for her confidence if she got yeah. out of the first round. Yeah, it would have been tough, and now she's got a, a very winnable second round game Good. against. Uh, 
Kovinic, Montenegrin girl who's 27, ranked right. number 99 in the world. She's never been third round of a Grand Slam. Right. So Raducanu would, you know, quietly fancy her Great. chances of doing well, that. And the good. more she wins, the yeah. more momentum, the more confidence. And I saw some Union flags unfurled in these, yeah. uh, it, what is it, the Rod Laver yeah. arena. So, yeah. so we've got some Brits there cheering for there her. Cheering yeah. her on, so. She's so much more attractive as a tennis player than that boring uh, contour woman who's retired. <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't get inspired by her uh, even when she was doing well and, well i'm sorry about that no i mean she wasn't my favorite i must no. admit but she was she made the most of her abilities let's say right. she naturally as talented as someone like radicani but she yeah. worked hard yeah whereas and when she was and when she quit the sport it barely made a um, it barely made a ripple she's quit yeah. <laughs> yes you're right it didn't it didn't um yeah. it, it got a page here or there there we are then. That's our deputy sports editor coming especially for me because um, I wanted to talk tennis. Yeah, I'll just wait for the extra payment to come yeah, through. Yeah, when, when, when mine arrives too, we can go halves. <laughs> Good. Thank you very Lovely much. Lovely to talk to you. Cheers. Right, so shoppers are facing a New Year debt crisis, not least because the use of buy now, pay later schemes surged by at least £1 billion at Christmas. Total total festive spending using the method which lets consumers pay for products in instalments has been put at 3.3 billion pounds by credit karma 43 percent higher than last year i'm joined now by gareth shaw's head of money at which gareth how does it work um buy now pay later i know it sounds obvious but what do you do you pay um uh, it's, it's heavily, there'll be a lot of interest, I presume, um, and you can pay. You can you can stagger the payments over a period of what months or years. Well, the buy now pay later is a concept, as we know, has has been around for years. The ability to purchase a, a big ticket item, spread yeah. it over a period of twenty four or thirty six or even sixty months. This the new wave of buy now pay later, which the report is talking about, is a piece of technology that's been integrated into retailers' websites that allows people to spread the cost of items over a much shorter period. So we're talking about 30 days, eight weeks, three months. They aren't, in many cases, they're not formal credit agreements. You're not charged any interest. You're you're effectively entering into a payment deferral scheme. Um, Now, because you're entering into a payment deferral scheme, these schemes are unregulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. I think that's where a lot of the concern comes with this new wave of buy now, pay later, that you've got a product that is soaring in usage and popularity that doesn't have any kind of regulatory oversight in ways that other credit products do. So why is the Financial Conduct Authority not regulating these payments, particularly, as you say, Gareth, they're they're multiplying in, in in numbers? Well, they're not regulating them now, but they will be very soon. Um, A report by the former acting head of the FCA, Chris Woolard, uh, recommended that um, this becomes part of the FCA's remit. Because of the way these schemes work, because you're not entering into a formal credit agreement, you're simply deferring your payment until a pre-agreed time, that that doesn't actually fall under the the regulator's current perimeter um, for credit regulation. So what needs to happen is that the government needs to legislate to give the FCA power. It's already issued a consultation on the shape of that legislation. Um, And then at the same time, 
the FCA will, once empowered, will need to consult on what regulation looks like for um, this kind of nascent sector. And it, it's a tricky balance for um, the regulator to get. In, in one sense, these are quite innovative products and, and quite handy, you know. Yeah. Because of the boom in online shopping, you can't go on and try on three different suits or mm. or clothes. You, you you may need to buy three or four different sizes. You might need to spend £500 knowing you're going to send back £400 worth of stock. And if you can do that without having to pay anything up front, yes. that's actually, that's actually really that. handy. So is that, um, and is that where the, is that where the um, buy now, pay later schemes has surged with online purchases? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, some, some of the schemes out there say that they can facilitate in-store, um, in-store payments, but by and large, it's, it's down to the online relationships and it's a really frictionless experience. You know, it, seeing Klarna or ClearPay or LayBuy is as common now as seeing Visa, MasterCard or PayPal when you come to checkout. So, you know, the, it's not just fast fashion brands that have signed up to partner with um, Buy Now, Pay Later schemes. We've got heritage brands such as Marks and Spencers. They, they're right. in partnership with ClearPay. So this is a scheme that is becoming a, you know, a, a consistent um, way of, of paying for something like you would a debit card or a credit yeah. card. But how would a company like ClearPay make any money out of it? What do, what do they get out of it? This is, this is the interesting thing here. The customer of, despite what the buy now, pay later firms say, the customer of the buy now, pay later firms is the retailer. So the right. retailer will pay them a proportion of the sale of goods that that, are, that goes ahead through the I buy see. now, pay later scheme. Right. So that's why you're charged no interest. So that's a great. A that's that's good for the consumer then, isn't it? It's good for the consumer, but but I mean, the concern here is that what psychologically what does buy now pay later do to a shopper yes. do they end up putting in more into their basket more than they can afford because yes. psychologically they think well i can spread the payments of this yes. not actually realizing i'm i'm getting into debt and if you go to the kind of business for business section of a buy now pay later schemes website they boast about how, how many more extra sales they can get for a retailer, how much more can go into a basket. Which So you can see the attraction for yeah. a retailer to, to have one of these schemes in place. I think where Witch has been concerned about this is not about buy now, pay later per se. I mean, used responsibly, it can be very, very handy. But because the vast majority of these schemes don't carry out um, a full credit check on you. Or well, that's full, just what I was going to ask check. you, Gareth. Yeah. How, do, how does the retailer or the online, whoever, where it's, how do they know that, say it's me and I've decided to do this buy now, pay later, how do they know that I'm going to be good for the money in three months' time? Well, it, it really depends on the scheme that the, the buyer ends up using, and it can be quite confusing. You know, when we did research on this, we found one retailer that's got six different buy now, pay later schemes at the mm. checkout. Some of those schemes will do a hard credit check on you. So they will take a deep dive into your finances. Right. It will be recorded on your credit history. Um, it could affect your ability to borrow in the future. 
Um, but they will know, they will take a, a kind of deep look at your finances and say, actually, we're willing to lend to this person. Others will do a soft credit check. It, it, it doesn't get shown to any other lenders. It takes a, a look at basic information and then make a decision. And others don't look at any credit history at all. They're just quite happy to, to let you utilize the schemes. And I, and I think that is, you know, from the retailer's perspective, uh, Perhaps having uh, a scheme that doesn't check lots of credit histories means you can maximize the, the volume of people utilizing it. From our perspective, and I guess from the regulator's perspective as well, is like, uh, you know, how much are these schemes checking the affordability um, for users? Are people who are in distress more um greater, uh, more greatly attracted to um, using buy now, pay later, because perhaps they've missed a payment in the past. And is that going to compound things for them in the future? So it, it, it all builds up to this is a market that needs to be regulated and have the oversight of a regulator to make sure that the processes that the buy now, pay later schemes have are appropriate. Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating, Gareth, I must say. Um, I'd never even heard of these schemes, so very interesting. That's Gareth Shaw. He's he's head of money at which. Uh, so if you're buying now, paying later, just make sure you can pay later. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.